Good morning. It's also a privilege to focus our attention on the Word of God and on what He has for us this morning. God has spoken to us in His Word and in His Son, and He gives us this privilege of gathering together every week to address Him in prayer, to speak to the God of the universe. He hears our prayers, and then he speaks to us in his word and through the preaching of his word. This is a great privilege that we have week in and week out. And so I pray this morning that we would, we would see it as such and we would receive it as such. Turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 3, verses 10 through 15. 1 Corinthians 3, verses 10 through 15. It's a well-known saying, and I think a good one, generally, that no one on their deathbed says, I really wish I had spent more time at the office. Rather, they say things like, I wish I had spent more time with my family. I wish I had spent more time on things that have ultimate significance. And yet, I bet those same people hope that their life's work mattered. No one laying on their deathbed wants their life to have been a complete waste. And so you have Thomas Paine, who was an intellectual who wrote The Age of Reason, a philosopher who led many people away from Christ and the gospel on his deathbed saying he regretted writing that book said he could give all the world to take it back because of all those he had led astray. And yet he still couldn't come to faith in, in Christ. What a waste it would be. What a, how tragic would it be for you to be laying on your bed, deathbed and re- recognize your life's work has been wasted. It was all for nothing. The 20, the 30, the 40 years you spent was a waste at work. That would be a terrible tragedy. Well, there is a way to make your work last in this lifetime. There is a way to make your work have ultimate worth. There's a way to make your life matter and it not to be a waste. There's a way to be on your deathbed and recognize that, you, that what you invested in and what you worked for had eternal significance. And it's not simply spending that time with your family that you should have, right? We can make it we could make an idol of that. You could be on your deathbed and not regret that you didn't spend enough time with your family because you did, and yet it still could be a waste because you invested only in your family and not things of eternal significance. The way to make your work last and your work matter in your life not be a waste, is to make sure that it flows from Christ and His work and is done for His glory. So, C.T. Studd's poem, the line that echoes out and rings around in our minds, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. And that goes for your vocations as well. That's not simply speaking of those who preach the gospel and those who work in the church full-time. It goes for any job that you are accomplishing for the glory of God as it flows out of Christ and His work for you. 
So we have the doctrine of vocation. That in your various jobs and activities, you are actually serving your fellow man through what you're doing for the glory of God. And it flows out of love for others because of what Christ has done for you. It's true of any job you do. But this morning, from our text, Paul is talking particularly about work in the church. Or we could say about work on the church as he uses this image of building up the church. So look at our text together, 1 Corinthians 3, verses 10 through 15. By the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as a wise builder, and someone else is building on it. But each one should build with care, for no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. If anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, their work will be shown for what it is because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. If what has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward. If it is burned up, the builder will suffer loss, but yet will be saved even though only as one escaping through the flame. Dear Heavenly Father, we pray that you would speak to us by your word as you have promised to do so. Move among us by your spirit to bring life to our bodies, to bring life to our hearts, to give us faith, to believe all that you have told us and are telling us, and to obey. By the power of the Spirit, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So Paul has been addressing a problem with the Corinthians. He's been addressing their immaturity. They've been languishing in immaturity in Christ. He calls them babies. You, by now you should be eating meat, but you're still stuck on milk. The elementary principles of Christ and the gospel and his word. You are languishing in immaturity. And One thing that revealed this immaturity is their jealousy and their quarreling among one another. Particularly, they're fighting over who has the better leaders. They're choosing sides and pitting their leaders against one another. Uh, They're really following the culture in this way, in, in attaching themselves to someone who was more prestigious or more intellectual, seemed to have more wisdom or more eloquent in their speech. And they're trying to gain traction for their own prestige by doing this. And so Paul, he really rebukes them for their immaturity. And in verses 5 through 10, Paul is trying to give them a more biblical, more God-centered understanding of what's going on in the church. Don't put too much stock in your leaders. Don't attach yourself to your leaders in this way. And especially don't pit them against one another because we are in cooperation with one another. Really, it's God who is the effective cause in all of this. One plants, one waters. We're sowing this field together. And yet if God doesn't do His work, then none of it matters. We are simply servants of the Lord. We are co-workers in God's service. And he gives these images of God's field, right? The church is this, you could imagine it, a farm, a garden being cultivated by workers in this field. And God is working in its midst as well. God's building, you are God's field. You are God's building. And so he pictures the church as this structure which is being built 
for the glory of God. And actually, he gives another image in the verses we'll look at next week of this building, not just being any old building, but it is filled with the Spirit and thereby becomes the temple of the living God, where God dwells in us. Paul further explores this metaphor of, of the church as a building in the verses that we see today, particularly about the builders of this building. He begins with how he started the work by laying the foundation. And then he goes on to talk about how others are completing this work, how others are continuing this work, and how they should go about doing that work. Paul wants the Corinthians to be discerning about who their leaders are. He wants them to be discerning concerning who it is they are following. Not simply by the wisdom of the world, but by the wisdom of God. Not simply by how eloquent they are or how prestigious they are, but are they building according to God's designs? Are they following God in how He wants to structure the church? So He he doesn't want them to have too high of a view of their leaders, but He recognizes there is a responsibility of leaders to care for the flock. There is a work to be done by the leaders. As Mark Dever says to young ministers who are beginning perhaps at their first church to be patient, he says, preach and pray, love and stay. Feed the flock, care for the flock. Or as Timothy Whitmer says in his book, The Shepherd Leader, we are to know the flock, we are to feed the flock, we are to lead the flock, and we are to protect the flock. There, there are responsibilities that leaders have. So just because we aren't to, hold, aren't to hold them in too high of a regard doesn't mean there isn't important work to be done. And yet, Paul also places some of the responsibility on the flock themselves, on the congregation themselves, to follow those leaders who are being faithful to the Word. And so, uh, Paul says, in the last times, there will be... Uh, People, who, people in the church who want to gather for themselves leaders and teachers who will scratch their itching ears. So he's holding them responsible for the type of leaders they're following, for the type of leaders they're listening to. The congregation also has a responsibility to listen to faithful teachers and preachers and leaders. So here it seems Paul's particular aim is that the Corinthians would be discerning about who their leaders are. They would consider who it is that they are following in light of faithfulness to the gospel and God's designs for his church. So in light of Paul's aims, I want our aims to be these two this morning. First, I want our congregation to be discerning about your leaders. I want you to be discerning about your leaders. So That would be, in particular, Jason and myself, to examine us in light of these verses, in light of the teaching about what builders should be. There's also an opportunity, an application here, to encourage us in these things, to to help support us, making sure that we are being faithful to what the Word teaches us we ought to be, and also to pray for us. If you want to know how you can pray for your leaders, here are some practical ways you can pray for us. Pray along the lines of what Paul says leaders ought to be, what builders ought to be, and what they ought to be doing. But then also, as 
by extension, we can apply this to ourselves as well. So one aim is to be discerning about your leaders, to encourage them and pray for them in this way. But a second aim would be to apply these tests to your own life and work as a Christian. So we are a church, and so the the leaders of the church, the elders and deacons, aren't the only ones doing work in the church. God has gifted us in various ways, each one of us. It's almost like we're each working in the field together, side by side, taking on different tasks so that this field can be can grow and be fruitful. Or we are different workers, like a contract hires out different workers for the building. One to do the floors, the plumbing, the electric, electricity, the, the siding, all, all kinds of different aspects of the work. We are in this together, building together, and so all of us must examine our own work to make sure it is following the designs God has for His church. So be discerning about your leaders and apply these tests to your own life and work as a Christian. So I want to come at this looking at four qualities to look for in leaders. What kind of leaders are you looking for? What kind of leaders should you be following in the church? So first, I want you to see that we should be looking for leaders who are careful not to take credit for themselves. Leaders who are, not, who are careful not to take credit for themselves. Paul is eager to never take credit for himself. Sometimes it's, he, he realizes he has to defend himself, but you can tell he doesn't like defending himself. Already in the scriptures that we've read in 1 Corinthians, we've seen that he says, Who, who are Paul and Apollos? They're merely servants, just taking orders from the Lord. He even goes far as to say those who plant and those who water are nothing. Rather, it's God who is working. He does, you know, he does say, I laid a foundation as a wise builder. So he is expressing the task that he has been given from the Lord. But even here, he says, it is only by the grace that God has given me that I've done this. He recognizes any and all work that he does for the glory of God is accomplished by the grace of God in him. He was careful not to take credit for his, himself or to, to tout his own achievements. We might consider this a, a throwaway, throwaway line if we didn't consider the context. So by the grace God has given me, we might just think, oh, he just threw that in there. But really, the context is one of self-promotion. These Corinthian leaders were promoting themselves. They were touting their own achievements. They were touting their wisdom. They were touting their strength or eloquence. And so Paul, by saying it is only by the grace that God has given me, is going in the exact opposite direction. He took the opposite approach. And so we see later on in this letter, 1 Corinthians 15, Paul saying, I am the least of all apostles. Not even worthy to be called an apostle. In Ephesians 3.8, he goes even further and says, I am the least among all the saints. All those Christians, all those who call on the name of the Lord, I am the least among them. And in 1 Timothy 1.15, he goes yet further still and says, I am the chief of sinners. An apostle saying, I am the chief of sinners. Is this just a false humility? Is he just trying to, to lather people up and... Uh, pretend like he is the chief of sinners? No, I think it, it is a genuine view of how Paul saw himself. 
the least of apostles, the least of all saints, the chief of sinners. And it's only grace that turns a self-righteous Pharisee into a humble saint of God. Only grace does that. Paul was self-righteous as a Pharisee. And yet, here we see his view changed radically because of the grace God had shown him. Now what we see in the Corinthian culture is similar in our culture today regarding leaders. Even among the Christian subculture, certainly we see it in the broader context. We see it in the the, uh, presidential election and the debates that are taking place. You have to... You have to blow your own horn. You have to talk about your own achievements and how powerful or influential you are. And yet we see this in the Christian subculture as well. There's self-promotion, name dropping. It's a temptation pastors have. It's a temptation I have when talking to other other pastors. You want to sound like you you know somebody who is really well known. And that, that way you can build yourself up a little bit. But Paul stands in stark contrast to those sorts of leaders in the Corinthian culture and in our culture today. So what kind of leaders are you looking for in the church? What kind of leaders ought we be looking for? Self-promoting or humble? There is a a sort of temporary glory in having a self-promoting leader. It feels good to be known. It feels good for your church to be a well-known church, a vibrant and growing church that everybody respects and looks to. But it matters because the leader who is self-promoting will also be self-dependent. And the leader who is self-dependent will lead you to depend on him as well. The leader, however, who is self-effacing and utterly dependent upon God for His grace, and the grace that God gives will lead you to dependence upon God as well. This is why it matters what kind of leaders we have and whether they are prideful and self-promoting or whether they are humble and dependent upon God. And really, it's, we could apply the same thing to ourselves. What about you? Are you... In your various vocations, in your work in the church, are you self-dependent or are you dependent upon God and the grace that He has for you? Humility really is is only a question you can answer for yourself because we can all pretend to be humble, right? I, I like to say I have the spiritual gift of false humility because I can trick all of you guys. And think into thinking I'm humble. We can trick everyone into thinking that we are humble. But only you are able to discern as you consider your own life, as you consider your own inner motivations and attitudes. Am I a humble person? Am I dependent upon God? Or really is there selfish pride creeping up within me? So the women are, are studying a book together. Uh, the, self for, the Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. By Timothy Keller. So this would be a good way, men, even if you're not in the study, reading this book, perhaps getting together with another man. It's a really short book. You could read it and and meet and talk about it in one meeting. This is a way we could pursue humility together to make sure we are not dependent upon ourselves, but dependent upon God and His grace. In your service in the church, 
What are your inner motivations? When I was uh, in seminary, it was said that when it came to preaching, and especially interpreting the Bible, there were three rules of interpretation, and it was context, context, context. And uh, St. Augustine says this, If you should ask me what are the ways of God, I would tell you, the first is humility, the second is humility, and the third is humility. Because it's, it's then that we can put ourselves, position ourselves into re- in a place to receive the grace that God has for us. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. We will receive the grace of God as we lift our hands open toward Him. These are the kind of leaders we must be looking for. So you can pray for Jason and myself that we would have a genuine humility that we would recognize our dependence upon God and lead others to depend not on ourselves, but on God as well. We also need leaders, and we should be looking for leaders who recognize the need for cooperation. I won't spend a lot of time here because we spent a lot of time in the past few weeks on this. Paul had laid the foundation and someone else was building on top of it, verse 10. It's unclear if he's happy about this or not, In context, I think he is. I I don't think he's saying some others are building on top of it and they're uh, they're, they're doing the wrong kind of work. There is a hint of that. And yet in context, he's just been talking about cooperation, about he and Apollos and Peter. They are in cooperation with one another. They have this spirit of cooperation rather than a spirit of competition. Paul is not opposed to other leaders. He just wants to make sure that they're being faithful to God's design, to God's plan for his church. And he has the expectation that his work would be passed on to someone else. And that's clear throughout his letters as he disciples and mentors Timothy, his son in the faith, faith, as he leaves Titus in Crete to appoint elders who will be able to be faithful and teach these things to others in the churches. And really this this cooperation is connected to the humility that we just saw. Grace yields humility And humility will yield a cooperative spirit. Self-dependence and pride, rather, yield the attitude, if you want something done right, you have to do it yourself. If you want something done your way, you have to do it yourself. Leaders who are proud and uncooperative are looking to build their own name and their own kingdom, rather than to exalt the name of Jesus and His kingdom. But you ought to consider your own roles in this as well. Your own roles, especially in regards to the church. Think about the particular ways in which you're involved in the church. Would you be able to let that go if someone else wanted to be involved in that way? And would you let them do it in a way different than you had been doing it? Are you able to let that go? Are you able to let someone else do it their own way, in a way that may may not fit your preferences, but might work just as well? That might reveal a lack of cooperation in your heart, or, or a sense of pride that you really know how it's done. You really know how to get it done, and they don't. Leaders must recognize the need for cooperation. And then third, we must be looking for leaders who are careful to build on the foundation which is Christ. We must be careful. 
We must find leaders who are careful to build on the foundation, which is Christ. So Paul laid the foundation by the preaching of the gospel as a wise builder. Uh, and so even him being a wise builder is in contrast to the wisdom of the world. He laid this foundation by the preaching of the gospel. He said, I came to you with fear and much trembling, and I, I wanted to know nothing among you except Christ in him crucified. This is the foundation work that Paul did among the Corinthians. The preaching of the gospel with humility. The preaching of the gospel, not in words of eloquence or high and lofty words, but in simple speech. The preaching of the gospel. And when we see uh, Paul mentioned Christ here. He, he intends us to read that Christ and his cross. Christ and his work for sinners. This is the foundation. We must not lay any other foundation. There is only one foundation. And therefore, Paul says of these other leaders, a general statement, each one should build with care. Each one should be careful how he builds. And so it's evident, it, it seems perhaps evident or possible that other builders had been laying different foundations or working on the side of the foundation that Paul had laid in the preaching of the gospel. Through Maybe they were laying foundations of, uh, of influence or of power or of wisdom. And Paul says, no, the foundation is Christ. The foundation is Christ in His work for sinners, in His weakness, in His broken body, in His blood spilled out for the forgiveness of sins. This is the foundation. The definitive work in the church is not our striving or our service or our ministry or our preaching. The definitive work in the church is Christ's work. Christ who died for our sins and rose from the dead. And so you have the hymn, which says the church's one foundation is Jesus Christ, her Lord. She is his new creation by water and the word. From heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride. With his own blood he bought her, and for her life he died. And this must be the foundation of our church, the person of Christ and his work for us. So our designs, our strategies, our plans for the future must rest upon this foundation. Our attitudes, our motivations and desires must be conformed to and take their shape from this foundation. All of our work in the church, all of your work in the church, will last only to the extent that it rests upon and points to Christ, our foundation. And His definitive work for us, in His perfect life of obedience to the Father, in His substitutionary death and resurrection from the grave. This is the only foundation for God's church which has been laid. So what are some other foundations that could be laid? What, what, are, what are some things we need to guard against? We were talking just earlier this morning about how does a church get off of this foundation of Jesus Christ? How does it happen? It, it seems like for the Corinthians, it happened in a matter of just a few years. They had, they had already begun to falter and go away, move away from Christ as the firm foundation. I think often in our time, it seems to have happened, seems to happen over long periods of time. One little inch at a time. One baby step at a time as we move ourselves from the centrality of Christ and His work for us 
to, to other things. And so one foundation could be a pastor's uh, personal charisma. Uh, people could be attracted to a, a pastor's personality. He's just so fun to be around. He's just so inviting. He's just so eloquent. Everything about him excites you. And gradually, it becomes about the pastor rather than Christ. Or it could become morality. That our work and the things that we do and our religious duties become the focus rather than Christ's work for us. So almost imagine you're building blocks and you build one block here and then you shift another, you put the next block on but you shift it over just a little bit. And then you put another block on and you shift it over just a little bit. And and you keep doing that until what happens eventually. The whole thing falls over. Or imagine building a tall building and every inch up you go over one inch it seems like such a small adjustment such a small change and yet you get to a certain height and the building completely collapses because it is offset from the foundation this is why we must be careful to be explicit about the gospel and to build our church on this one foundation of the gospel otherwise we will come to ruin and so you have the mainline liberal churches today, who are so far from the gospel, you can hardly even recognize it as a church anymore. Now what happened in those instances is that gradually, step by step, they started to focus on other things. And so a church could focus on on social justice, which is an important implication from the gospel that we ought to do justice, that we ought to care for those who are oppressed, that we ought to be prophetic voices for those who are oppressed and marginalized. But if you make that central, if you make that the one defining thing about who you are, you lose the gospel. And your church will no longer be a church because it's not built on Christ, the foundation. If we are to be strong, mature, if we are to be a stable church, we must be built upon the foundation of Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Support your leaders in this. Be about this for yourself. Hold, let's hold one another accountable for this. That we would be centered on Christ and His work for us. But Paul doesn't end his image with the foundation. The rest of the structure must be built as well. The walls, the doors, the rafters, the roof. We are in the process of being built up into a spiritual structure in which God dwells. And so it's important that we also have leaders who are careful to build with materials which will last. Leaders who are careful to build with materials which will last. So you see three conditional statements in verses 12 through 15. In verse 12, you see if anyone builds... On this foundation, using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, their work will be shown for what it is, because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. So if anyone builds, their work will be revealed and tested for its quality. When will it be tested? When will it be revealed? He says, on the day. On the day. What is he talking about? The day? 
It is the beginning of the consummation. When Jesus Christ will come, when he will return, as we sang about in several songs this morning, as the hymns so wonderfully talk about that day when the clouds will be rolled back as a scroll, the trump will resound, and the Lord shall descend. It is well, it is well with my soul. We, we don't, I've talked before about how we don't often think about death enough. And we don't. We ought to live life in light of our death because it's something probably all of us will face unless the Lord returns. But it's also true that we don't spend enough time thinking about the day and our lives in light of the day. So we don't spend enough time thinking about our death and we also don't spend enough time thinking about our resurrection. I loved what we sang this morning. I will rise with the saints. And living life in light of our resurrection when the Lord will come. I mean, that thought can just captivate you as you think about the bodily resurrection when we will be with the Lord forever. We ought to think about our lives in light of that day and how we build and what we're doing in light of our eschatology. And I don't mean particular views of the millennium, but the day when Jesus Christ will return and begin to make all things new. On that day, your work will be revealed and it will be tested for quality. It will be tested. It will, we will see on that day whether... All the work you've done throughout your life in in the church and for the church and for the sake of Christ will have been wasted or will it last? So he uses this imagery of different materials that can be used. Gold, silver, costly stones. The, The precious stones there are probably things like granite and marble. Things that make a strong, sturdy building that will last through the ages and wood, hay, and straw, combustible materials, things that will burn up on the last day. The contrast here, what are these materials? What is Paul trying to get across? I think the contrast has to do with what he's already been talking about. The wisdom of God versus the wisdom of the world. The wisdom of God being Christ and His cross God bringing down the, the, the things that are valued and prized in this world and lifting up Christ and His work, what seems like foolishness to the world. Contrasting that with the wisdom of this world, power and wisdom and influence, all those things that we prize today in our culture. Those things which are built on Christ, which flow from Christ, which give glory to Christ, will last. Anything else will burn up. So hold us leaders accountable to this. And consider as well your own work in the church, our work together. What are we building here? With what kind of materials are we building? Each one of you has an influence over someone else in this church. Even if it's just your children or your your spouse, you have an influence even, even you young people, you have influence over other people in the church. And we ought to be considering, what kind of influence am I having? What am I building into this person which will give glory to Christ? Which will build them up in Christ, in maturity in Christ? We ought to be seeking how to do someone else 
do spiritual good to someone else regularly. Ray Stedman was a pastor a few decades ago, and he really challenged me as I read some of his, uh, his writing on this passage. Consider this challenge that he gives. Speaking of himself, he says, I want to find a way by which I can indulge in all the love and pleasure of the flesh to give way to my tempter and to my desires for acquisition of comfortable things, to enjoy life to the full with all its pleasures and still at the same time have the compassionate heart and the loving, joyful, peaceful, serene spirit that constitutes a Christian who is walking in the power of God. And he says, isn't that what you want? Sure you do. You do not need to look so pious. I know it is. But do you see that what the apostle is saying? It is one or the other. If you are not building with gold, silver, and precious stones into another person's life, you are building with wood, hay, and stubble. There are no other choices. There is nothing in between. It is one or the other. Either the foolishness of man or the wisdom of God. That is why Paul says you must take care how you build in the church. Why must we take care how we build in the church? Because of the other two conditional statements. There will be accountability to the Lord for our work. See the second conditional statement. If what has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward. If what has been built with with gold, with precious stone, with silver, if what has been built in this church survives the builder and the builders will receive a reward. This is an amazing statement and we see several more amazing statements in, in the verses to come about God rewarding His people. Although we are deserving of nothing at all, not even being saved, and yet here we read of God being a rewarder of His people. And if the Lord rewards you you will not be disappointed have you ever been disappointed with your wages as a worker my brother and I worked one time to tear down a deck and we slavishly worked in the heat of the day to remove this deck and lunch was banana mayo sandwiches who does that like who who feeds their workers banana mayo sandwiches? And then at the end, I don't remember how much money it was. I just remember being really disappointed at all that hard work I had done. And this is what I have to show for it. This is the reward that I get from that. When we stand before the Lord, having built by His grace, having labored by the Spirit which works within us, having accomplished His work for His glory, pointing others to Christ, there will be no disappointment in the way He rewards us. Can you imagine the Heavenly Father standing before you, Christ standing before you and saying, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Master. I mean, that, that's reward. In itself, is it not? To have commendation from the one you love more than anyone else in the world. To, to have the almighty creator of the universe say, well done, 
enter into my joy. If what has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward. But if it is burned up, the builder will suffer loss. Consider what happens if the builder uses wood, hay, or stone. If it is burned up, damage is done to the church. The whole thing collapses. It falls down. Damage to Christ's bride. Wasted work. A wasted life. 30 years of wasted effort. And he says loss of reward as well. The builder will suffer loss. He will not receive the same reward as if he had built with gold, silver, things that last. And yet this amazing statement, what do we make of this? Yet he will be saved even though only as one escaping through the flames. And someone might say, we all might be tempted to say, who cares about the rest as long as I'm saved, as long as I get there? Who cares about any reward or anything else? But is that the attitude you think Paul wants the Corinthians to have here toward their leaders? You've maybe heard the saying, not somehow, but triumphantly. That was a little, I think it was a, a, uh, something on my refrigerator as I was growing up that my mother had for an inspirational thought. Not somehow, but triumphantly. And sometimes, maybe sometimes often, we feel like not triumphantly, but somehow we'll get through this day. But on our good days, we want not just to be saved, but for our lives to count for something. To make a difference in the lives of others. To make our work matter. To have a lasting impact in the lives of others. To have joy as we look back over our life's work for the sake of the gospel and know God made it count. God worked through us. Perhaps the greatest One of the greatest mercies in life is to die satisfied in Christ. And looking back over your life to die with a contentedness. And so Isaac Watts, the writer of many hymns, says, It is a great mercy that I have no manner of fear or dread of death. I could, if God pleased, lay my head back and die without terror this afternoon. Could we say that with him? Or there's Paul in 2 Timothy 4 who says, I am already being poured out like a drink offering. And the time for my departure is near. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. And it's true also with Jesus, from John chapter 19, later, knowing that everything had now been finished, and so that scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. And a jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant, and lifted it to Jesus' lips. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. And with that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. The only way you can look back over your life 
and know it mattered is if all your work is bound up in the it is finished of Christ. If all of it flows from and points to the work of Christ on behalf of sinners and consider this grace of Christ as well. According to Paul, all of one's life could be wasted on building with worthless materials and yet through faith in Christ Jesus and his work for you, you will be saved. What grace is this? What grace is this that God gives us in Christ? Let us pray and ask for more of it.